What's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much to everybody who gave us a super nice review on Apple Podcasts this week. A couple of those people include Don from Pittsburgh, California, Nikel from Utah, and Courtney from Oregon. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and thank you for reviewing. We also want to say thank you so much to our latest Patreon members, Aaron Murphy, Jared E., and Rebecca White. You guys are awesome, and if anybody else wants to subscribe to our Patreon, it's just $5 a month, and you get bonus episodes. And if you also want a shout-out in the show, make sure you go over to Apple Podcasts, Leave us a five-star review, but make sure you leave your name and your location. We've got a really good case for you guys today, so let's get into it. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This morning, Amy Bishop, the professor charged with killing three colleagues in Alabama back in February, is now charged with killing her brother in 1986. I want to know why, I want to know what, I want to know who. Amy Bishop was just 21 and looking to complete a graduate degree at Harvard University when she claimed to have accidentally killed her brother while unloading her father's shotgun. Amy Bishop is a Harvard-educated neurobiologist PhD and is a mother of four. Now she's charged with capital murder. On Friday, Bishop allegedly opened fire in a faculty meeting, killing three fellow professors. She was recently denied academic tenure and was reportedly upset. Bishop was born on April 24, 1965, in Iowa City, Iowa, to parents Sam and Judy, who met at the New England School of Arts in Boston. Sam was raised by Greek immigrants and was previously in the Air Force before settling down with his family. He was a painter by day and a janitor by night. Amy was the firstborn child and was always bright yet assertive, and when she was very young, her family moved back to Massachusetts, where Sam got a teaching job in the art department at Northeastern University. After settling in Braintree, Massachusetts in 1968, Amy's brother Seth was born. Braintree is a middle-class suburb south of Boston, and while living there, Judy became very involved. She joined the town meeting and local governing body and even started drawing editorial cartoons for the local paper. Everyone thought of her as the town spokesperson. She could answer any question you had. As a child, Amy suffered from asthma and often ended up in the emergency room. She had a deep interest in science early on and wanted to find the cure for everything, just like her brother Seth. 
The two were very close as kids, and they often played violin together and did science experiments. A few years ago, I went to Massachusetts by myself, and I went to Salem in this really, really cute town called Marblehead. And then I went to Boston, and I had all this time to kill before my flight on my last day. And I remember driving through Braintree because I was just driving like all over that area because I just wanted to see like what Massachusetts looked like. And yeah, Braintree is like this little tiny historic town. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a ton of those like small historic towns in that area, like outside of Boston. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot, especially since it's on the East Coast. I feel like the East Coast has a lot of those cute historic towns that the West Coast kind of lacks. I've actually never been to Massachusetts. It's really cute. I Salem is adorable and Marblehead, if you guys have not heard of Marblehead, go look it up. It's this really adorable colonial town and it's so cute and I stayed in this really old like 1792 built colonial house Airbnb and it was awesome. I think if I was going to go to Massachusetts, probably the one place I'd really want to go, I think is Martha's Vineyard. Definitely to go check out where they filmed Jaws, of course. Oh, I didn't know it was filmed at Martha's Vineyard. I'm down. Let's go. Yeah, I'm totally down. Anyways, so as Amy and Seth grew up, they also grew apart a bit. Amy remained a loner while Seth seemed to make friends a bit easier. One night in 1985, when Amy was 20 and Seth was 17, The family returned home from Sam's father's funeral to find their house broken into. The place was ransacked and Judy's wedding ring, engraved silver cups, and many other valuables were stolen. Naturally, the bishops were incredibly upset by this and Judy even wrote a letter to the local newspaper pleading for their items back. After this event, Sam, the dad, picked up a 12-gauge shotgun from a sporting goods store because he felt that's what he needed to do to keep his family safe. Amy and Judy apparently didn't feel comfortable at all about having a gun in the house, but Sam kept it anyway. He stored it in his and Judy's bedroom closet, unloaded. The following year, on December 6, 1986, at around 2 p.m., something tragic happened in the Bishop household. Amy Bishop fired three shots from a 12-gauge shotgun, one going into her bedroom wall, one into her brother Seth's chest while they were in the kitchen with their mom Judy, and another into the ceiling while she was fleeing the scene. Judy frantically called the police explaining that her son was dying and that the entire incident was a tragic accident. Seth had just started his freshman year at Northeastern University to study electrical engineering. He was 18 years old. The police station was just about two miles away from the Bishop home, so they arrived pretty quickly. Judy was waiting for police by the front door, and her clothes even had some spots of Seth's blood. She took them to the kitchen, where Seth lay on the floor bleeding out. Paramedics immediately tried to revive him, but didn't have any luck. Judy told police that Seth had just returned from the grocery store when Amy came downstairs carrying her father Sam's shotgun. Apparently, Amy said, I have a shell in the gun, and I don't know how to unload it. Judy told Amy not to point the gun at anybody but apparently she swung it around to show her brother and it fired. She shot him point blank in their small kitchen, and as soon as he collapsed, Amy ran. This doesn't make sense to me why she ran, because if it was an accident and you shot your brother, why would you run away to try to escape? Wouldn't you stop and try to help him? Yeah, definitely. You're not going to just, you know, shoot somebody and then take off running. That's something that someone who's guilty would do. 
Or if she meant to murder him, she would have run to try to get away from the situation or to try to escape and not get caught. But if I accidentally shot my brother, I would collapse on the floor with him. You know, like you don't run away. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The first thing I would do is go grab the phone and call 911 and just like try to stop the bleeding, do whatever you can. Another thing that doesn't really make sense to me about Judy's story is that she never mentioned the fact that Amy shot a hole in her ceiling and that was definitely done first. So if Amy shot a hole in her ceiling, she would have had to have reloaded and pumped the shotgun again and then go downstairs and ask her brother how to unload the gun and then she accidentally shot again. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. She would have to definitely pump the shotgun in order to fire off another round, in which we know that there was three rounds fired off. So that means she pumped that gun three times. Exactly. And also, you don't pump it again and then say, hello, how do I get this out? And the family would have been like, what the hell happened? Like, you just blew a hole in your ceiling. You know, that's like a big deal. Right. If you're not familiar with a shotgun, I would say if you shot a hole in your in your wall or in your ceiling, like at that point point you would just be like all right I'm not fucking touching this thing anymore I'm gonna put this thing down it's just weird to me that in their stories they say it was an accident she came down to see if Seth could unload the gun for her after she already accidentally fired one it just doesn't add up police immediately put out a bulletin when they couldn't find Amy at the house she was quickly picked up outside of an auto body shop in town and was taken to the police station where she was interviewed her story went like this She stated that she loaded the shotgun because she had been worried about robbers coming into the house. Seth had once showed her how to load the gun, but not unload it. She loaded several shells, but while trying to figure out how to remove it, she accidentally fired a shot, which shattered the mirror in her bedroom and put a giant hole in her ceiling. When she heard Seth come home, she went downstairs with the gun and asked for his help on how to unload it, which is when the gun went off. When asked if she shot her brother on purpose, she said no. Her father, Sam, hadn't been home at the time. He was at the mall. He had left the house around 11.30 a.m. because he and Amy had gotten into a disagreement over a comment she made. It's unknown what that comment was, but regardless, he arrived home later that day to find his driveway covered with emergency vehicles. Around 3.08 p.m., Sam rushed to the hospital, where Seth was pronounced dead. Sam actually stated, they keep saying he was dead, but he didn't seem dead to me. He looked at me. So they basically assumed since Amy and her mom Judy stated that it was all an accident and because she seemed remorseful, it must have been an accident. And apparently while the family was at the hospital and then the police department, some neighbors had gone to their house and scrubbed Seth's blood from the kitchen so they didn't have to come home to that. The Bishop home was a Victorian style house that had a big covered porch. It was built in the 19th century by a dentist who actually ran his practice from a cottage on the property. A nurse named Deb was renting the cottage from the bishops at the time of Seth's death. She joined Judy in the kitchen trying to comfort her while Sam went into his study and Amy climbed into her parents' bed. Deb, whose grandfather had been a police officer, was incredibly surprised that Amy was released so quickly. Judy explained what had happened while Deb noticed some specks of blood and muscle tissue still on some of the kitchen appliances. She told Judy that she shouldn't be in there and took her to her bedroom. The whole neighborhood was incredibly supportive of the bishops during this hard time. They would bring over Chinese food and pay their respects. 
Seth's wake was held at the Church of All Souls, and many attended the open casket service. Sam and Judy clung to Amy during the wake, and many reported that Amy looked completely catatonic, like a zombie. A medical examiner ruled Seth's death an accident, and police reported that every part of this story led them to believe it was all a tragic accident. In a final report made on March 30, 1997, a state trooper named Brian Howe, who had been working with the DA's office at the time, stated that Seth Bishop's death was the result of the accidental discharge of a firearm. At this point, with the story the police have heard by the entire family and the sense of remorse and regret, it kind of makes sense that the police would believe it. You know, like, why would they think a young girl would want to murder her brother? And they were both smart kids and came from a nice family. They had no idea who Amy Bishop would come to be. So it's easy for us to look back now and say, are they crazy? But even to this day, Amy says she was horrified by her brother's death and still insists it was an accident. It wasn't until 2012 that the documents regarding Seth's death were released by police. They explained that when Seth fell to the floor, Amy ran out of the kitchen and out the back door, still holding the shotgun. She cut through a wooded area and ended up in an alley that was adjacent to an auto dealership. However, it being a Saturday, the shop was closed, yet there were some off-duty mechanics hanging around outside. According to these men, Amy came up to them holding the shotgun, explaining that she needed a car. She demanded that they give her keys, but the men ran. That's when police found her, noting that she looked frightened and disoriented, and that she kept both of her hands on the shotgun. After Seth's death, Amy continued to live at the Bishop home, often sleeping in bed with her parents for comfort. She rarely left the house to see friends, she just pretty much became a shut-in. Amy eventually continued her education at Northeastern University in Boston, but still lived at home in Braintree for a little bit, leaving her with a short 30-minute commute by car. Although she didn't drive herself, her father would take her to and from campus when he worked. Amy achieved excellent grades and graduated from Northeastern before enrolling in the PhD program in genetics at Harvard. While attending Northeastern University, Amy met a young man named Jim Anderson, who was also a biology student. They both were a part of a group on campus revolving around Dungeons and Dragons and other similar games. They dated for a few years before getting married in 1989 at the same church where Seth's wake was held. Kind of creepy. Within a couple years, and at the age of 26, Amy was pregnant with her first child. In 1991, she gave birth to a girl named Lily. After Lily, she quickly had two more daughters, Thea and Phaedra. People described Amy as a very loving mom who took great care of her children. She bought organic food for the house and encouraged the kids to get involved in playing music, just like she and her brother had. After she had kids, she was still managing to continue the PhD program, but was finding it very difficult. Nonetheless, in 1993, she finished her thesis and got a degree. Many people who were a part of the program with her mentioned later that she should have never gotten a degree and that Amy was a weak doctoral candidate. Amy, her husband Jim, and her children actually lived in the cottage on her family's property in Braintree for a time. Amy only trusted her mom Judy to babysit, so the arrangement worked out well for her. However, in 1996, Sam and Judy finally sold their home and moved to Ipswich, Massachusetts, which is a coastal town about 40 miles north of Braintree. A few years later, in 2001, Amy had her first son, and she named him Seth. Weirdly enough, he was born on Seth's birthday. At that time, 
Seth Bishop would have been 33 years old. Alongside studying science, which was her main passion, Amy also enjoyed writing poetry while she was in college. Years later, she decided to begin writing again, but this time, she focused on fiction novels. She wrote three novels, all of which were dark thrillers, and a lot of details in her books included parallels of her real-life tragic events and thoughts. Some aspects clearly reflected on the loss of her brother, and others on the struggle of seeking an elite career as a woman while also caring for four children. However, none of them were ever published. She always enjoyed mentioning that a literary agent was working on getting her a book deal, but it never came to fruition. Many people described Amy as being eccentric and operating at a high frequency. Although she could be considerate and had a quick wit, she was very erratic and bizarre. One morning in 2002, Amy, Jim, and the kids went to a local IHOP for some breakfast. The restaurant was incredibly crowded, and once the family was seated, they requested a high chair for Seth to sit at, since he was just about one at the time. The server told Amy that the last one had been given to another party, and Amy screamed, but we were here first, before rushing over to the other table where a woman and her children were also eating breakfast, and she kept yelling, I am Dr. Amy Bishop, while punching the woman in the head. I found one source that mentioned Amy also shouted, I'm on a 10-year track, you fucking cunt, and I'll give you fucking herpes, but it's unclear how accurate that is. So basically at this point, we're seeing that Amy clearly has some anger management issues that need to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, that's just a very dramatic reaction to not being able to have a high chair for your son. I know that's annoying because he needs to sit somewhere, but you don't go punch the lady in the head who took the last one. It's not her fault. Yeah, I feel like she just has these really angry impulses that she can't control, so... She just seems very impulsive, and I think that's really showing even here in her just a regular day when she's going to breakfast with her family. Definitely a loose cannon. And Amy was asked to leave the restaurant by the manager and the police were called. Amy was actually arrested for this, but the charges were dropped, so they never appeared on her record. Amy appeared to be the sole breadwinner of the house. Her husband Jim worked here and there, but never really had a consistent long-term job. When he did work, It was often laboratory jobs that he got with the help of Amy. She told her colleagues that Jim was too smart to work, but in one of her novels, the heroine of the story is married to a computer programmer who can't hold a job in his field, so he ends up working at a radio shack. She describes him as ambition-challenged and a flaccid, bed-loving loser. But in real (laughs) life, he's probably playing D&D with his friends. (laughs) I actually think that's really funny, a flaccid, bed-loving loser. That's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. She's very descriptive with her words. The Andersons struggled with money, but in 2003, Amy was offered a tenure-track job at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. So the family moved, hoping this job would bring financial stability. At this time, Jim and Amy were working on a project, an automated cell incubator, which I guess was supposed to replace the Petri dish. The president of the University of Alabama predicted it would change the way biological and medical research is conducted. However, this invention was taking a lot of time out of Amy's schedule, which was risking her chance of tenure because instead of writing papers and working on her publication record, she was working on the project. She was also seemingly ignoring warnings that said if she failed to publish more, it could jeopardize her chances of tenure. So she basically knew that this was risky and she continued to do it. 
Not to mention she was awful in her classrooms. She often told her students that they weren't as bright as Harvard students, and she would randomly cut people from her class if they pissed her off. Many students also requested to transfer out of her class. I actually read on RateMyProfessor.com, I think it is. She has a 3.6 rating, which really isn't that bad, but a lot of people said that she was smart and she knew what she was talking about, but she got confused easily and she was kind of all over the place as a teacher. Yeah, and she was definitely pretty stiff as a person. Like I was reading some articles that was saying when they lived back in Braintree that she would get super pissed off if kids were playing basketball after like 8.30 at night and she would actually get into confrontations with other neighbors at that time. And I remember reading one article that said that one of the neighbors had mentioned that they didn't invite the Andersons to like a neighborhood block party because Amy was just too confrontational. Yeah, she's definitely uptight. There's no doubt in my mind that Amy is incredibly smart. She just really lacks social skills, I think, and maybe lacks some empathy as well. I definitely think for a teacher, it's obviously important to be knowledgeable, but it's also important to be a cool person. Like, who wants to learn from someone who has a dud personality or who's kind of mean? Yeah, I mean, some of the best teachers you've ever had in school are kind of relatable. They're, like, cool down to earth. Like, they're... Super funny. Yeah, willing to talk to you and willing to work with you. And I think Amy was so uptight that people maybe even felt intimidated by her. Also, Amy had claimed that her and her husband both had an IQ of 180, which I don't believe that. That's just interesting that she said that because 0.4% of people have over a 140 IQ and 140 plus is considered highly gifted. So to be 180 and for both of you to happen to be 180, that just seems kind of unlikely. And like we mentioned earlier, people said that she was a weak candidate for a doctorate. So I think she was smart, but I don't know if she was that smart. Yeah, I don't buy it. In spring of 2009, Amy's tenure was denied, which meant her job would soon come to an end. At least one of the members of her committee told the Chronicle of Higher Education that she was crazy and they were worried about her mental health, which was apparently an obvious issue with her from the first impression. Amy filed a series of appeals and eventually hired a lawyer. One day, Amy and Jim went to a firing range in Alabama to do some target practice. They brought along Jim's 9mm Ruger that Jim had acquired years earlier from a friend. A week later, tragedy struck. And we'll get into that story after this quick break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel 
which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500-500. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey 
Hello friends, we are the Ladies of Strange. I'm Ashley. I'm Tiffany. And I'm Rebecca. Have you ever wondered if Jenny's head really did fall off when they removed the green ribbon? Or if aliens are hiding in the tales of comments waiting to take us away? Or if there's any scientific basis to the Ouija board? Well then don't risk your search history and join us each Thursday as we discuss the history, mystery, and theory of all things questionable, odd, and eerie. For links to where you can stream episodes and see blog posts on the subjects we cover, head over to our website, theladiesestrange.com. Keep it strange, lovelies. My name is Hunter. And I'm Haley. And we're your hosts of Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers, and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales. You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and all of your podcatcher services. You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. At Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye. And we're back. On February 12th, 2010, Amy Bishop went to the University of Alabama in Huntsville and taught her anatomy and neuroscience class. At this point in time, she's 45 years old. Some of her students later reported that she seemed perfectly normal during her lecture. After her class, she attended a biology department faculty meeting with about 12 other people as usual. For the first 40 minutes of the meeting, she was incredibly quiet which was strange for her because she was usually very vocal about her feelings on the different matters that were discussed. Amy was still clearly very upset about her being denied tenure. She expressed this to her friend and colleague, Deborah Moriarty, who was a biochemist. Deborah remembered Amy saying that her life was over. During the meeting, Deborah could tell that Amy was likely thinking about the fact that she would have to find a new job soon, and Deborah even made a mental note to ask Amy how her search was going. Deborah was also a mother, and as of recently, a grandmother. Deborah was always incredibly comforting towards Amy during this hard time, and they really had developed a nice friendship. Just as the meeting was coming to a close, Amy stood up pulled Jim's 9mm Ruger semi-automatic pistol out of her purse and shot Gopi Padilla, the department chair, in the head. Amy then shot Stephanie Monticciolo, the department assistant. Then Adriel Johnson, a cell biologist. Everyone was screaming and ducking for cover under the table. No one could leave the room because Amy was blocking the only exit. Amy's fourth victim was Maria Raglan Davis, another colleague of Amy's. At this point, Deborah was hiding under the conference table when Amy approached her. Deborah wrapped herself around Amy's legs, pleading for her life. Amy looked her right in the eyes and pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't go off. Amy pulled the trigger again as it stared Deborah in the face, but it was jammed. Deborah used this opportunity to flee the room, but Amy followed her while repeatedly squeezing the gun's trigger. While Amy was attempting to fix the gun, Deborah ran back into the conference room and helped a colleague barricade the door. At this point, six people had been shot and three of them were dead. The entire occurrence lasted about one minute. Amy then went to the bathroom where she wiped the gun off and threw it in the trash can. She also removed her blood-stained blazer and got rid of that as well. Amy then casually walked to a different part of the building and asked to borrow a student's cell phone. 
She dialed Jim and told him that she was done and to come pick her up, as he often did. When Amy was leaving the building out the back, she was apprehended by police. As news trucks arrived to cover her arrest, Amy is seen saying, It didn't happen. There's no way. They're still alive. When police discovered that Amy had called Jim directly after she shot her colleagues, they interviewed him, but quickly discovered that he was not involved. Apparently, Amy reported that shortly after her brother Seth's death, she began hearing voices, and that in the months before the shootings in Alabama, she was under a great deal of stress and it caused her to hallucinate. In an interview that I watched with Jim, he actually was saying that he didn't see any signs of mental illness with Amy, and he didn't see any reason for her to see a psychiatrist or anything like that, so, or he may have just been trying to protect his wife, but either way, he's denying the fact that she had any mental health issues. If you guys watch his interview with ABC News, you'll see he seems very distraught and teary-eyed and honestly very confused by the whole ordeal. Like he has no idea how the woman he loves and his wife could do something like that. So that's really interesting to see. In the interview, you know, he explains he just wants to know what, he wants to know how, he wants to know who and why. I read some articles as well that included interviews with uh, some of Amy's different friends who said that Jim was kind of passive and if Amy was upset about something, he wasn't really comforting or helpful with any of that kind of stuff. So I think she left her issues to discuss with her few friends and her colleagues and not really go to her husband. And if you watch the interview, you can tell that Jim is kind of a flat person. There's not a whole lot of emotion going on there. I mean, he he does look kind of upset in the interview, but at the same time, his answers are very short. They're very, like, to the point, and he's just kind of monotone. So, I, I mean, that really doesn't mean anything. That doesn't make a big difference. But like what you're saying, if she didn't want to disclose her feelings with him, maybe it's because she just felt like she couldn't communicate with him in that way. One of the surviving colleagues in the meeting reported that no one liked Amy because she was very difficult to get along with. They mentioned she once ranted for almost an hour at a meeting saying that everyone hated her. People attempted to befriend her but found it incredibly hard because she was quick to threaten them. In one occurrence, a colleague tried to compliment her page boy haircut. AKA the Lord Farquaad, if anyone out there has seen Shrek. (laughs) Definitely the Lord Farquaad haircut. Anyways, which turned into an argument, and Amy ended up threatening to break into their house and inject nitric oxide into his genitals while he slept. That's a really extreme thing to say to someone who's trying to give you a compliment. Yeah, that's definitely like the opposite reaction you should have when someone says, Hey, I like your hair. And I think that's kind of the point, that it was hard to talk to her without something like that happening. Like, she was just very extreme. Zero social skills. Once Amy was arrested, a few people at the University of Alabama's biology department told police that they believed Amy created a herpes bomb in the science building with the intent of spreading the virus. When Amy was completing her postdoctoral studies, she was working with the herpes virus, and one of the novels she wrote described a situation where a virus similar to herpes was spread throughout the world. This information is still unconfirmed since police never actually found any herpes bombs. So it's unknown why so many people believed this. 
It's pretty unlikely because herpes is a fragile and rarely deadly virus, and no other terrorist group has ever made a herpes bomb, as far as we know. Also, chickenpox is the only common member of the herpes family that can go airborne, so it just seems unlikely that this happened. But I wouldn't put it past her to concoct something like this. Also, looking back at the 2002 IHOP incident where Amy Bishop punched a woman in the head for taking the last booster seat while apparently yelling, I'll give you fucking herpes. So that is kind of an interesting connection there. It's especially not surprising that Amy is questioned for this potential herpes bomb because in 1993, Amy and her husband Jim were suspected of mailing a pipe bomb. 1993 was the year Amy really struggled with completing her education, although she received a degree, and she was referred to as a weak candidate. After getting her degree, Amy was working as a researcher for Children's Hospital in Boston doing postdoctorate research and worked along fellow scientist Dr. Paul Rosenberg. Paul was the man who received the pipe bombs shortly after Amy left her job that year. During the investigation, Dr. Paul Rosenberg told authorities that Amy's exit wasn't very positive. Paul had been fairly vocal towards Amy that she shouldn't be working there because he didn't feel she could meet the standards required for the work. A witness reported that Jim said he wanted to get back at Paul and shoot him, bomb him, stab him, or strangle him. Somehow, after an interview, Amy and Jim were dismissed as suspects and, to this day, the case remains unsolved. It seems that Amy and Jim would have been educated on how to create a bomb since they were both scientists and inventors, and the circumstances revolving around Amy leaving her job and Jim's threat, it seems unlikely to me that this would have been done by anyone else. I definitely agree with you on this. It seems like something that Amy would do. We already know that she's a very impulsive person, and I think she's got anger issues for sure. So with the bad blood between her and Paul Rosenberg, it just seems like this is probably them. On February 15th, 2010, Amy was charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. The police confiscated Amy's computer, the family's van, and a large binder containing documents pertaining to her tenure battle. When her attorney visited her in prison, he noted that Amy said she did not remember the shooting and that she had a loose grip on reality. Although it was initially determined that Amy appeared to have paranoid schizophrenia, this was later retracted. But she was still treated for it with haloperidol. After the shootings, police dove back into Seth Bishop's death and were now looking at it from a completely different perspective. At the time of his death, Amy came across as this horrified, guilty young girl who made an awful mistake. They assumed it had to have been an accident because they didn't know what Amy was capable of and weren't aware of her mental health issues. Now that they knew that she was capable of multiple murders by gun along with two potential bombings, they were looking at a whole new Amy Bishop. On June 16, 2010, so about four months after the University of Alabama Huntsville shootings, Amy Bishop was charged with first-degree murder in her brother Seth's death, almost 24 years after it happened. District Attorney William Keating said, I can't give you any explanations. I can't give you any excuses because there are none. Jobs weren't done, responsibilities weren't met, and justice wasn't served. Her mom, Judy, stated, We cannot explain or even understand what happened in Alabama. However, we know what happened 23 years ago to our son, Seth. 
was an accident. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up. And this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. Dash Pass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why Dash Pass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with Dash Pass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Oddly enough, in one of Amy's unpublished novels, she writes a fictitious situation where a girl attempts to frighten her friend after an argument, but instead accidentally killed her friend's brother. Patrick Radden Keefe, who is a writer and investigative journalist, read the book and reviewed the evidence surrounding Seth's case and speculated that Amy had meant to frighten or shoot her father since they had gotten into a bad argument just two hours prior to shooting Seth but instead shot Seth by mistake. I definitely see her taking inspiration from her own life in the situation, and this could have kind of been a way for her to discuss what really happened in 1986, but without confessing. Since her dad had left the house around 11.30 a.m. and Seth had left for groceries a little while later, it's possible that she had wanted to shoot or scare her dad and that when she heard the front door open, she just assumed it was him since she knew he wasn't home. But at the same time, she must have seen Seth's face before she pulled the trigger. So I don't know if maybe she just swung around the gun too quickly and pulled the trigger, not really thinking about it. But regardless, whoever was in that house, whether it was Judy or her father or Seth, you shouldn't be swinging a gun around in the house and just pulling the trigger willy-nilly. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's possible if she did, in fact, want to shoot or scare her dad. She thought it was her dad, but when she went downstairs with the gun, she actually did accidentally shoot her brother. But I I just don't know. 
And that's kind of crazy to, you know, say that that's how you're going to scare somebody. Like, like obviously scaring your friend is one thing, like jumping from behind a door or something like that, or, you know, even worse than that. But coming downstairs with a gun so that you can scare your dad, that seems a little over the top. And whether or not she was trying to scare someone, why did she have a giant shotgun in her room anyway? Like, why was she playing with a gun to begin with? What really scares me about this case is that if the shootings didn't happen in Alabama at the university, we may not ever have seen justice for Seth's murder. So obviously it's unfortunate that that happened. But it's kind of strange to me that after so long, they're able to go back and connect the dots. Like, why weren't they able to do that back then or even a few years later? See, but even the police admit that they dropped the ball. Like, they know that they messed up. Yeah, absolutely. And I totally get that. Well, especially because... Amy's mom was such a figure of the community. Like we mentioned earlier, you know, that probably had a lot to do with it for the police. They were like, this is a respected family of our community. Why would they do this on purpose? So they just let it slip through the cracks. Yeah. And I think we also mentioned earlier as well that because Judy was a public figure in Braintree, a lot of people believe that she may have paid off the police department to rule this as an accident. So that's just one theory that's out there. It's interesting to me that her mom still maintains that it was an accident, you know, even after what Amy did at the college in Alabama, that she still stands by the fact that she thinks it was an accident. And we have evidence that Amy is capable of shooting someone. So why wouldn't Judy believe that Amy was capable of shooting her brother back in 1986? And obviously the police believe this as well because they convicted her of murder. So it's like they would have had to have had some pretty damning evidence to take a case from 1986 and go back and overrule that initial ruling on the case and say that this was in fact a murder. And we've seen this in a lot of other murder trials where the parents kind of stand behind their children. And I honestly think that's kind of natural. Like you raise this child, you in part take responsibility for their actions. So obviously you're not going to be like, my child's a murderer. And so it makes sense that they're kind of backing her. But at the same time, your child did something horrible. And even like you said, even if it's crystal clear that this person committed a murder, a lot of parents will be like, nope, they didn't do it. They'll live with that for the rest of their life. So two days after Amy was indicted for the murder of her brother, she attempted suicide in jail. She was treated at a nearby hospital and then sent back to jail in Alabama. On September 24th, 2012, Amy was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after pleading guilty to her charges. That same year, Amy was hospitalized once again when she attacked another inmate in which the victim defended herself by hitting Amy with a cafeteria tray, according to a witness. The day before this, Amy was involved in an altercation with a prison guard. Amy still remains at the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka, Alabama. Our hearts really go out to the victims of the Alabama Huntsville shooting and to anyone who was affected by Amy's violent behavior. And of course, Amy's younger brother, Seth Bishop. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. We'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into next Monday. And if you want more episodes, check out our bonus episodes on patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. All you need to do is subscribe $5 a month and you get ad-free bonus episodes. And for some reason, I haven't plugged this yet, but we actually do have a Facebook page. So go check us out at Going West True Crime. Let us know what you think. And as always, go check us out on Instagram at Going West Podcast and on Twitter at Going West Pod. So for everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio. Cheerio.